Well, good morning, maybe seated, you may be seated. It's a blessing to be with you all this morning, whether uh, you're here with us in person or if you're joining us online, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, if you're tuning in online and you don't know who I am, my name is Logan. I am the assistant director here uh, for the Old Brooklyn campus. But uh, this morning we get to look at God's word together. And before we do that, let's go ahead and dive into prayer. Dear God, you are the living and true God. When we connect with you in a healthy way, our lives will thrive. And when things in life crowd you out, our souls are deprived of that life that we crave. I pray that your spirit would whisper to ours this morning, and I pray that we could connect with you in the kind of way that our lives would be conformed to you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Several years ago, I read through a book called The Circle Maker um, by Mark Batterson, and he told a story. It was a Jewish legend, a Jewish myth, uh, that circulated uh, either just before the time of Christ or just after the time of Christ. And this myth was about a man called uh, Honi, H-O-N-I. And the myth goes that this gentleman was very much an outskirts kind of person. He existed on the outside. People tried to separate themselves from him because uh, he was a little bit weird, a little bit out there. And he was okay with that. He typically dwelt in the outskirts, dwelt in the desert, uh, wherever he wanted and could find room. But there came a time, so the legend goes, that uh, Israel started facing a severe drought. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited, but no help came. No rain would fall on the land. One day, this uh, gentleman, this Honey, uh, came through with his walking stick, said nothing, looked at no one, and simply set his staff down and started walking around his staff time after time after time, making a circle. Once he felt that the circle was complete, he sat down in it, and this was his prayer. Lord, I'm not moving from this circle until you send rain. And as the legend goes, there was a storm that came through that threatened to flood the whole area. And Honey said, for such rain, I have not prayed, O Lord. Then there was just a light sprinkle and said, this is not the rain that I've prayed for. And the legend goes eventually that the rain that he was asking for did indeed come. And the crops were able to grow. The famine was over. The drought was over. And people rejoiced. But it's fascinating because as the legend continues, as this myth continues, uh, years later, there was a conspiracy that arose. There was someone who had threatened the nation uh, by threatening to place a curse on it or something of that like. And in that moment, all that Honey did for his nation was forgotten. They used him as a cheap scapegoat and unjustly uh, executed him, so the legend tells us. And I find it interesting because sometimes in our lives, it's easy to separate 
ourselves from people who may seem different or distant. And in those moments, sometimes we don't give them the thanks that they deserve, but also we miss, more importantly, a connection with them that would be healthy for them as well as for us. And it's this idea of how we separate ourselves uh, from others that I want to dive into a little bit today. And in fact, we're going to look at a story from Jesus about how people uh, made it their goal to separate themselves in such a way that it would drive away people who were different from them. And that had a dramatic effect on their own lives and in the life of the culture around them. And as we look at this story, which Mark, uh, Mark records of Christ, I would ask that you and I would walk through it together with humility. There are some difficult parts to this story, and there are some parts, uh, some parts that we would rejoice over. And I ask that as we walk through it, when there's a tension, uh, don't let go of that tension too quickly. Because if we walk through the other side, we will learn something very significant about who Christ is and about how he works. The precursor to this story is it is about a week before the most important Jewish festival at that time, the festival of the Passover. Every year, thousands upon thousands of pilgrims of the Jewish faith would come from all parts of the world in order to be at the temple in Jerusalem to offer this sacrifice and to remember what God had done 1,500 years prior for their nation. He brought them out of the house of slavery and promised to be their God. A lot weighed on the mind of Christ as he anticipated the events of the coming week. Nothing would take him by surprise, and nothing would be without a purpose. In fact, the culmination of this week would look like him being accepted, then him getting on some people's nerves, him being rejected, and would end his ministry on earth by dying on the cross. All this was going through the mind of Christ, as he went towards Jerusalem for the last time. And as he was journeying, he sat down on the Mount of Olives, one of his favorite uh, places to sit when he needed a rest. And he sent two of his disciples to go into Jerusalem and bring back a young donkey uh, for him to ride on into Jerusalem. So the disciples went, got the donkey, brought it back, and they started laying their clothes on it to saddle up this young animal. Jesus hopped on and started riding into Jerusalem. While this has very little symbolic value for you and I today, the image of the anointed one of God meant everything to the people of Jerusalem. In ancient times, it was very common for uh, kings or for emperors to ride into their provinces, to ride into their cities or new places that they had conquered on war horses. 
displaying their power, their dignity, and their might. War horses were not small animals. They were massive. They were able to take on armies snorting at the sound of fear, laughing at it. This image of Christ could not be any more different. The one who is called the King of Kings did not ride in on a powerful war horse. He read, rode in on a young donkey. In doing this, he displayed his lowliness and his approachability. And the people loved Christ for it. They shouted praises of Hosanna, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord because they recognized this was fulfilling something that had been written about hundreds of years prior. The one they were hoping for had just come in to Jerusalem. It was the highlight of Jesus' week. People loved him. They couldn't get enough But on the next day, things got a little harder to swallow. Jesus was going back into Jerusalem. He spent the night outside in uh, one of his friend's house in a village and came back into Jerusalem. On his way, he found a fig tree and said, hey, love a snack. From afar, he could see that it had beautiful leaves. It was lush and it was thriving. But as he got closer, he found nothing on it. Now Mark tells us that this wasn't the time for figs, which meant that there should have been little buds uh, growing on the branches that anyone could have just snapped off and uh, snacked on. A little bit different than figs, but still very filling. And even this simple thing was not on the tree. All it was were leaves. And to us, that may not mean much, but if you're a farmer or if you know plants very well, I don't, I just read this this week, that means that there was a problem with the tree. Although it had the appearance of life, it was dying on the inside. At that point in time, when a couple months later it would produce figs, there should have been some sign of life other than the leaves. And Jesus found none. And so with something that uh, surprises people, Jesus said to the fig tree, may no fruit ever be eaten from you again. The disciples kept this on, in mind, and on the next day when they came back and passed it, they saw that the tree was completely withered from root to the top of the tree. What the reality was on the inside of the tree became the reality on the outside of the tree. Now, this is not a story about uh, trees and whether how to tell whether they're healthy or not or what you should do if they're healthy or not. Because there's a story that happens in between these two events that shows a place that Christ was going to which should have been vibrant with spiritual life. But when he came, 
although it looked beautiful on the outside, it was devoid of life on the inside. This tree was a symbol of what was happening in the temple. And Mark records this about Jesus' encounter in the temple. Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? It is, isn't it? But you yourselves have made it a den of robbers. There's three things I want us to look at uh, of how Mark breaks it down. Mark is saying that there is an upward disconnect between the people and God. There's an outward separation of people from people. And there's an inward conflict of what to do with Christ. That's the most blunt way I can put it. And we're going to work through it in that order because that's how Mark presents it. There's an upward disconnect between the people and God. The first thing we have to understand is the significance of the temple. Uh, We don't have much appreciation for it uh, as much as they did back then. Mark mentions the temple three times in this short paragraph. He said Jesus went into the temple, drove people out of the temple, and prevented people from carrying things through the temple. Three times he brings up the temple, and this is the image he has behind it. When, we, uh, when his readers thought of the temple, Mark didn't want them to think of a common building that people just went in and did business with. The temple was something special. In the minds of the people, this is where the divine reality met our reality. This is where the transcendent God set his name so that people could have an encounter with the living God. A thousand years prior when it was dedicated, the prayer was that when people traveled there to experience the presence of the living God, God would meet them in a powerful way. Uh, People came to the temple in order to find forgiveness for their sins from an encounter with the living God. They came to the temple with a holy expectation that they would find justice from people who wronged them because of the name of God that was set there. They believed that they would come to the temple to experience help and deliverance from their problems from the living God. This is the picture that Mark wants us to think about how the temple should have operated. This is the image that Christ wanted to find when he came to the temple that day. Leaves on the outside and fruit of spiritual growth on the inside, just like he wanted to find with the fig tree. 
But Jesus is dealing with a very different picture here. In fact, he makes a very strong accusation against it. In verse 17, he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is strong and harsh language, but we have to understand what was going on at this moment. There was a large group of people who believed that the offices of the temple, the high priesthood, the priesthood, uh, the scribes, the lawyers, everything had become corrupt. They became somewhat political offices that you could buy, that you could sell, that if you were in favor with the governing official from Rome, he would elevate you, and if you fell out of favor, he would get rid of you. It was no longer the basis uh, of what a godly leader would look like. The very people who should have been leading spiritual growth now used their office for uh, financial and political gain. The religious elites allowed a system to be created that oppressed the people who came. All right, the people needed to offer sacrifices when they came to the temple. That's how they uh, dealt with their sin. It covered over their sin. All right. The issue is, as Judaism, as uh, people who believed in the Jewish culture, expanded throughout different territories, it became impossible for them to bring their own animals, their own offerings. So they would uh, take some money from their local currency, go to Jerusalem once a year for this feast, and they would have to buy offerings for their stay. The merchants knew this. And during that time, they would intentionally increase the price of the animals so that they would be paying an exorbitant fee to get a... Uh, offering that was allowed. The problem is, the further problem, is that this was supported by the people in power. The very people who should have been leading uh, the souls of everyone who came there not only okayed this, but partnered with them in doing it. Instead of having them on the outside of the temple, they believed they could get more foot traffic by bringing it inside one of the courts of the temple, and we'll get to that in a minute. And in doing so, they got a cut of what the merchants got. All right. On top of that, people who were local to Jerusalem, when they came, they brought their own offerings. And when their offerings were inspected, it wasn't unheard of for the priest inspecting it to say, ooh, yours has a little blemish right here. You can't offer that. But conveniently, just down the street there, we've got an offering just for you. So they would be forced to leave their own offering, pay an exorbitant price for this offering, and use that. It was a scam. 
And one of the last things that's noted by most people is that, uh, most scholars, is that people outside of Jerusalem had Roman currency. Now, this doesn't sound too bad. It's like, okay, you go from here to Canada, you make an exchange, fine, no big deal. In that time, there was a special currency that you had to use in temple business. If you wanted to offer a tithe, if you wanted to buy one of these offerings, you had to use the temple currency. They saw this as another opportunity to scam people, so they would increase uh, the price at which you could exchange money. They gave a cut to the religious elites, and they kept a cut for themselves. Those were the money changers. The whole thing was a scam. Although this does not make Christ's response uh, easier to stomach, it does help give us a reason as to why Christ responded the way that he did. He was uh, indignant that the place where you could encounter the living was being treated as no more than a place for a scam by the very people who should have been stopping this in the first place. In fact, we're going to dive into this a little bit more in just a bit. Uh, this reaction of Christ overturning tables, I would overturn this table, but I kind of need it, and I don't want to pay for a new one. Um, the sounds that would make, the people who were in the way, everything that went on, that was stemming from a deep-seated love of Christ. Listen to how Dana Ortland puts this. It is Christ's heart of love, not a gleeful exacting of justice, that rises up from his soul to elicit such a, such a fearsome pronouncement of love. It's easy to see that, things, that people were being treated unjustly in this time. And if you or I were there and we saw this and we wanted to do something about it, there would always be something in our own hearts that says, ooh, I hope they get what they deserve. I want to show them just how wrong they are and get back at them and free the people and be the hero. Okay. In Christ's um, fearsome action, there was no sense of a sadistic joy that he got from driving people out. He did not derive pleasure from overturning tables in people's faces and disrupting the business. It was his heart that reached out to the people being oppressed that led to this kind of action. It's important to understand this because when we see uh, the scriptures talking about God's justice, when we see the scriptures talking about Christ overturning tables and driving people out, if we get the order of his heart wrong, then we get an image of Christ that is easy to think he's all about aggression. And we'll see in a moment uh, that his compassion and this uh, anger rise and fall together. All right. Let's apply this to ourselves for a moment. 
in our own lives, if the temple is supposed to be a representation of where uh, God meets people like you and I, in our own lives, there are things that seem important to us that can crowd out our purpose in connecting with Christ. You see, the religious leaders crowded out connecting with God for getting some financial and political gain. Jesus wants to renew in you and I that purpose we were created for. Where there are leaves that make it look like you're thriving, but on the inside your soul feels corrupt and shriveled. What if Christ wants to restore that to full health? What if Christ wants to drive away the things that block our connection, that distract us from connecting with who he is in a healthy way? Let Christ clean the clutter of our soul so that we can reconnect with him in a healthy way. For a little bit of time, it will seem like things are thriving on the outside, but just like the fig tree, there's only so long we can last with that facade on the outside before who we are on the inside starts to bleed through. There was an upward disconnection, but there was also an outward separation that stemmed from this upward disconnection. It was bad enough that the religious leaders and the merchants did everything that we just mentioned, that we just looked at. I haven't told you the full story, though, and I haven't told you the worst of it. You see, by moving it into the temple, uh, there's limited space in the temple. Just like there's limited spots out there in the church, there's limited spots, uh, spaces in here for us to be able to do things. If you bring something in, that means something gets pushed out. And the place they decided to set up their scam, their shop, was what was called the outer court. You see, the temple itself was sectioned off by gates and walls, that way people couldn't accidentally wander in. It was to keep people out. Immediately upon entering, though, uh, this was the place where every person who was of the Jewish faith could be. And in fact, it was affectionately called the court of the nations. If you were a non-Jewish person, this is the only place you could go into the temple to encounter the presence of the living God. In setting up shop there, the religious leaders, the merchants, everyone, not only were they saying, we don't care about the fact that we're scamming you, but they said, we don't care that we are preventing you from worshiping God. In fact, for some of them, not all of them, but some of them, that's what they would have liked. It's been a couple of years since I've gone, uh, but my family and I used to go to the West Side Market uh, every year or so. And if you've ever been, uh, you walk in and you have a very distinct smell. If you walk in uh, the vegetable and the fruit aisle, it has a very fresh smell to it. You hear people 
uh, uh, trying to give the best deal on their own aisle. You hear people haggling back to try and get a better deal. And it's a very boisterous place to be. Imagine having that at the back of the auditorium while you're trying to hear uh, something about Christ. Imagine having that in the hallway of the church when people are trying to pray for each other when things are difficult. It'd be impossible. And in fact, think about this, it gets a little bit worse because animals have a very distinct odor. I grew up in Medina County, so I've gone to the uh, fair out there. Uh, but if you've grown up here, all you have to do is go to the zoo to know there's a very distinct and unpleasant smell that animals produce. So not only is it impossible to focus because of the sounds, it's impossible to focus because of the smells. It's impossible to focus because of all the business going on. And it's impossible to worship because of people trying to prevent other people. All right. This is where Christ's compassion comes into play. He is so dedicated to his lost kids. He is so committed to them that he's willing to overturn the systems that were in place to keep them from encountering the presence of their heavenly father. He was willing to drive out the people that distracted them from this purpose. And this is where we get to dive a little bit deeper into this idea of um, an aggressive reaction to wrongdoing. B.B. Warfield was a uh, theologian and a um, scholar at Princeton University back at the turn of the 20th century, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And this is what he says when we think about uh, the justice of Christ and the compassion of Christ, the justice and mercy of Christ. It would be impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent, and unmoved. All right. In the face of an injustice, it is impossible for someone who is a moral being to be unaffected by it, to have no opinion about it whatsoever. Precisely what we mean by a moral being is a being who is perceptive of the difference between right and wrong and reacting appropriately to the right and to the wrong perceived as such. Okay, to be a moral being, you have to be able to distinguish between right and wrong. And then to be a moral being, you have to respond appropriately to both of those things. The emotions of indignation and anger therefore belong to the very self-expression of a moral being as such and cannot be lacking to him in the presence of wrong. This is what Warfield is saying. Mercy and compassion are just as necessary qualities for uh, those who are suffering as is indignation towards that wrongdoing, towards that injustice. And in Christ, they are connected. If you are a parent, you're going to connect with this well. If you see your kid being mistreated, if you see your kid being bullied, 
or uh, frustrated with themselves, you will have a fierce reaction toward the thing or toward the person that is hurting them. It would be unhealthy if your kid was being bullied or being mistreated for you to say, eh, it's okay, throw your hands up in the air and take a step back. There is a right sense in which our uh, sense of justice is triggered when we see people we care about being mistreated. And it stems from not trying to get back at the person who did the wrong, but because we love that person. And this is the way it works with Christ. Because he cared so deeply about those who were far from him, he was willing to go to lengths to remove the injustice from them so they could have a connection with God. As we re-encounter Christ, as he cleanses our souls to have a healthy connection with him, there is a sense in which we must recover our care for God's lost kids. Just as it upset Christ to see his lost kids, those who needed to connect with him most, being mistreated, so it should stir our souls to want to connect those who are far from God with his loving presence, with his presence that would go to great lengths to reach them. This doesn't mean we change our beliefs to reach people, but it does mean that we don't let our beliefs, our systems, the way we do things, we do not allow those to become barriers for people to encounter the presence of Christ. We don't let backgrounds, we don't let uh, ethnicities, we don't let differences of opinions or beliefs be a barrier that would prevent somebody from encountering the presence of the living God. As a church and in our own lives, where can we help connect God's lost kids to his loving presence? The last thing that Mark brings to a head is an inward conflict. All this begins with an inward change in our attitude towards Christ. The external triggers can motivate us and encourage us towards action, but that tends to last only temporarily. It is only through a deep internal encounter with Christ that will change us and shape us permanently because we will never do consistently on the outside who and what we do not become internally on the inside. Mark records something that I actually just learned uh, this week that no other gospel records. In verse 16, he says, uh, Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. All right, this is about an internal conflict, not an external problem. There are some uh, 
pieces of history that tell us, and this is what Jesus is referring to, that people would use the temple itself as a shortcut from this city to the outside, to the Mount of Olives. Um, I don't know if Ridge Road is still under construction or not by 480, but I used to, it seems like it'll, somebody's laughing, they know. Um, I would always use Memphis to Tiedemann uh, to bypass Ridge to get to 480 to go home because Ridge is a mess and I just refused to sit there for half an hour uh, to get on the uh, bridge, okay. That's using Memphis and Tiedemann in a common way to get from one mean, uh, to get from, uh, to use it as a means to an end. The people who were transporting things from one end of the temple to the other were treating the temple, the place where they should have been encountering the presence of God, as a shortcut, as a means to an end. Instead of going to encounter the presence of God, They said, hey, God, what's up, and kept going. Christ said, that's not how your spiritual life should be. Our spiritual life should not be a shortcut, a means to an end, using God as a genie or a divine vending machine to give us whatever we want. There's a deeper internal change that must recognize something unique about God, that he is the end to which our lives aim. He is the end towards which our lives are struggling. How we treat Christ, either as a shortcut to what we want or as uh, the end of our lives, becomes apparent in what happens next. After Jesus overturns the tables, and says, you have made uh, my house a den of robbers. This is the response that Mark records. The chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders who were supposed to shepherd people's souls, they heard it and they began seeking a way to destroy Christ. For they feared him. One of the responses to hearing about Christ is that he is the end goal, not the means to the end, can be a bitterness, a contempt, or fear towards him. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. They believed that all their power, their status, everything they had worked so hard for would come crashing to an end if Christ became the authority in their lives. And they resented him for it. But there was another more beautiful response that comes from some people in the crowd. All the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And this word astonished can also mean, uh, more accurately, amazed. They were enthralled with Christ. They were not um, repelled by him. They didn't resent him. They knew something of what the cost of following him would look like, surrendering to him. And they were filled with amazement. I wonder, when we encounter Christ, 
there's an internal conflict. And I wonder if that leads us to resent Christ or to live in the amazement of who he is. And so I want to end with these three ideas. One, we have to reconnect with Christ in a healthy way. Christ wants to clear the clutter from our souls, to remove whatever it is that distracts us from him. And I wonder if we would be willing to partner with him in that, to not let things get in the way of living in a healthy relationship with him. Christ wants to renew us so that we, we live in the amazement of Christ. Does who he is astound us? Does it make us want to grow more deeply connected with him? Or are we okay staying on the surface level? And as we reconnect with Christ in a healthy way, as we learn to live in the amazement with Christ, I wonder if we would be willing to share the amazement of who Christ is with God's lost kids. Our dear Heavenly Father, I am overwhelmed by the lengths you took to welcome home your lost kids. That you would reach out uh, to each individual in such a way that you would uh, remove everything that separated them. In our own lives, we recognize that you separated uh, all the barriers that kept us from you. You made a way through the gift of your son for us to have a healthy connection with you. Dear God, I pray for myself and I pray for my friends who are here and who are watching online. I pray that you would remove everything in our hearts everything in our lives that detracts us from, who, uh, from recognizing you and from connecting with you. I pray that we would live in such a way that we would uh, learn to be amazed with who Christ is. And I pray most of all that we could remove the barriers that prevent your lost kids uh, from experiencing and encountering the living and true God. And I pray that we could share the wonder and the excellency of Christ with them in a way that is compelling. And I pray that Christ would be glorified on account of this all. Dear God, we love you, and we thank you, and we trust you. It's in your Son's name that we pray.